This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It's a development that is throwing a wrench into many people's Christmas and winter travel plans. But will the new rules and restrictions on travel slow down or even stop the advance of the Omicron variant? And of course, those new restrictions are that now, if you're coming back from anywhere other than the United States, in addition to having your negative test, you have to take another one at the airport and self-isolate until you get a negative result. Uh, that seems like going backwards. That seems like a, a big to-do. I'm sure that it will change a lot of people's minds. So the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's welcome Dr. Alon Vaisman, epidemiologist and infectious disease specialist at the University Health Network, and Martin Firestone, travel expert and president of Travel Secure. Thank you both for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, first of all, your take on the new restrictions, uh, what do you think? Yes, yeah, so if we're focusing just on the, the new announcement regarding the testing and the isolation, I think it may have the effect of slowing down the transmission of the virus. But the question is, to what extent is it already here and to what extent is it in the U.S.? And the reason that's important is because this, um, this policy does not apply to people traveling from the U.S. So it makes sense to initiate some of these restrictions in the meanwhile, but uh, the travel bans themselves are, are different, and I, I think that is probably of less value. Okay, and and uh, Martin, uh, I bet it's uh, going to slow down business. <laughs> I would say we are one step forward and two steps back with what's happened now. We were just beginning to think it was behind us. We were having a banner month of people, everybody getting away. And as of the last two days, hesitancy galore on international travel, for sure. And even to the U.S., they're worrying about this upcoming Thursday, what potential announcements going to be made with respect to a new requirement to enter into the U.S. Okay. I mean, if I may digress for a moment, here's something that's making me a little, uh, you know, uh, so the, one of the favorite things of our leaders at all levels of government, one of the favorite things they've been saying for the last few days is it's, it's a cause for concern, but it's, it's not a cause for panic. So my question is, what's a cause for panic and, and what will be made better by us panicking? I mean, really, what, I mean, what are they saying with that? Dr. Vaisman? I think a cause for panic might be if we find out that this new variant is truly a lot more deadly, so a lot more virulent than the previous variants we had, and is in fact as transmissible as is theorized. But if it's simply more transmissible with either equivalent or less virulent, then it's not a you know a cause to panic. I'm assuming panic means to some extent more restrictions or some kind of higher level of you know authoritarian you know measures or something, but of course, panic doesn't necessarily mean being irrational. But really, right now, we don't know the answer to that question. And we don't know if this new variant is far more virulent than what we currently have. 
And so these kinds of um, mandates regarding traveling, coming into the country, testing in isolation are kind of one way that you could possibly slow down the transmission of this virus until we do know more. Uh, and Martin, what's your sense? I mean, it, it isn't affecting people going to and from the United States. So uh, what's your sense from your clients? Well, it's not yet. I mean, as I said Thursday, you could find out a couple things that he wants uh, a one-day, 24-hour test result as opposed to the current 72-hour one, which I'm not quite sure how you run and get one and get the results and get yourself uh, uploaded and all that and get yourself ready to go. So that's a concern. But the real concern would be if he enforced, this is President Biden, the a seven-day quarantine for all people entering the U.S. That would be problematic, I think. So that's a major concern. And internationally, no one I know wants to be in some country and find out that they can't get back to Canada, as is what's happening in South Africa. So that's causing tremendous concern at this point. Yeah, uh, I would imagine that. Um, and again, Dr. Vaisman, in terms of the the travel ban, so here's one thing that has me scratching my head. Uh, Dr. Tam, our chief medical officer, said that in terms of a ban, she was banning places where they failed to detect it. Um, until after another country detected that they had it in, in their midst. Uh, but the United States is exempted. And I think it's, it's probably, uh, very, uh, overly optimistic to assume that it's not there if we have it. Right. Um, it seems unlikely that there wouldn't be a single case in the U.S. now, given how large it is and how many cases there have been in the past. But the rationale behind the travel ban is not, not really consistent, given that we know now that it's it's possible that it was found in Europe, even it, it was in Europe, I should say, before it was even detected in South Africa and the other African nations. So a ban on travelers, specifically from those nations in Africa, doesn't really make sense. It didn't really make sense in the beginning and certainly doesn't make sense now, given we know how widespread it is in Europe and Israel and other countries in the world. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't know how widespread it is. Here we have seven cases. That are, are, are the case actual numbers that large? Well, it's it's more the the idea that if you ban people from these countries, are you actually tr- reducing transmission at all? And is it have, going to have any positive effect in the future on the overall management of the pandemic? And the likely answer is no, because what we're saying is that we're punishing these countries who are doing a good job of detecting the new variants and not really providing any kind of reward. And it's outright not very fair, considering that these variants have already been, you know, numerous. You know, this probably. 60 cases found in other countries already. So, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, this message it's sending is not very positive and also doesn't really make sense when it's so prevalent in other European countries that we're not issuing bans to. Yeah, I mean, the, the South Africa is uh, sort of protesting, saying, hey, we shared the information and you're punishing us for it. It's really not fair. Uh, right. But I guess uh, uh, countries w- want to do what they can, or at least to be seen to be doing what they can. Um, Marty, um, is there any kind of reaction where you have people saying, you know, we're going to get while the getting's good? We're gonna- Very much so. Um, the snowbirds who all left in November, the majority of them are now suggesting they want to get out a little earlier because they're not sure what the U.S. Uh, announcement could be on Thursday, so I'm getting that today. And then there's others that are saying, you know what, I'm concerned and I may just wait till things settle down. So there's that hesitancy and unknown at this point. And we didn't have that a week ago. If anything, we had just full tilt ahead. 
it's behind us, everything is good. And unfortunately, they don't quite feel that same way now. So we wait and see. But are there people who are saying, hey, I was going to go in January, but I am going to go now before there, before I end up having to self-isolate uh, once I get to Florida or anything like that? Yeah, not not really, because they've either got a rental that doesn't begin till January or, or, or they don't. And, and so that's the thing. The majority of them who could get away because they own a, a residence or a condo or something like that, all left in November. The ones who are going in January because they have a rental that they're taking for two, three months. So they, they don't have anywhere to go. So they're not going to go early. They just hope by January, the requirements for the negative PCR test to come home will be out of the way. But that that's, these things are all in the back burner now. They were almost all here where they waived the 72-hour uh, one for Canadians entering in. And we thought we'd get the other one waived for people traveling longer than 72 hours. But I don't think they're going to touch any of that for a while now. Hmm. Okay, let's take a couple of calls. We've got Shelly in Thornhill. Hello, Shelly. Hello, Libby. Um, it's a lovely sunny day today, and uh, I love your show. Thank you. So uh, my husband and I went to visit my daughter and grandson in the U.S. We uh, came back on Monday, this past Monday, and my after doing our PCR tests and getting, you know, negative results, and when we crossed the border, my husband was lucky enough to be picked to be random sampled yet again. He had to do another PCR test, and we had to do it at home. Yep. And we had to do it within 24 hours. Needless to say, as seniors, we were totally exhausted. So we started to do it yesterday morning. Um, And we had to use, it's called Switch Health. And we had to log in on something called ASMO, A-S-M-O. And it was the worst experience I've ever had on any Internet site in the, you know, all the years that I've used the Internet in different sites. And I'm fairly good at it. And uh, they did not tell you what information you needed ahead of time. So we're busy running around trying to find all these different numbers and information that they wanted. And it was terrible. So then we called them and finally got a hold of someone. And it took her an hour to walk us through the process of just getting an account on ASMO. And then it said, oh, we're very busy right now. There's no nurse to talk to you as you do your sample. So call back in five hours. And I refused to do that. And I held on and argued with her. And finally, she must have pushed a button because all of a sudden it said, we're 15th in line. It will be 10 minutes. (laughs) And okay, did you get it done? Yeah, we got it done. But it took an hour and a half of our lives. And um, it was ridiculous, and it was hard. And my husband is um, almost 80. I'm in my mid-70s. And let me tell you, he could not have done this on his own. It was, you needed two people, and too bad my daughter wasn't sitting beside me, because maybe she could have maneuvered through it a bit faster. Okay. Shelly, thank you for sharing that. That's um, not something any of us would be looking forward to it. I'm well, sorry it was such I'm a hassle. Well, the reason this is if they decide to use the same system when everyone's coming back from all these different countries, it's going to be a horror story for people. Okay, Shelly, thank you for that. You're 
Um, yeah, that sounds pretty bad. I know that my husband came back from Germany like the first week that this was available in the summer, and uh, his experience was smooth, but maybe uh, they have fewer people or fewer people handling it or more people uh, online, and it, that sounded like a very bad experience. Okay, uh, Ian in London. Hello, Ian. Hi, Libby. Um, my question is about the self-isolation with the Omicron. And if you come back into the country and you test positive, how do you self-isolate going from the airport to your home? Uh, somebody has to take you, and you're obviously not self-isolating. You could be potentially spreading it. So what exactly do they mean by that? Uh well, uh, at the airport, the, the test that they give you, you wouldn't have a result from it leaving the airport, right? They give you, usually they give you a test that you have to take within 24 hours. I see. So, so there would be possibly some transmission yeah, between there would the airport be. and home. Right. But you had to, you'd have to stay home until you got a negative result. Right. Which is right. not what you have to do now. Thanks for your call. Thanks. Um, Dr. Vaisman, do you see a lot of confusion out there that maybe will uh, be very detrimental? Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be an issue. I think some travelers who experienced this in the past when things are slightly opening up earlier will have experience with this process of having to quarantine after travel and having to test after travel. So it may be familiar to some people. Um, I think with reference to the earlier caller, the people would be advised to do their best to minimize any kind of contact when traveling from the airport to wherever it is they're isolating. So, you know, some people need to drive themselves, some people need to take a cab, but just try to minimize that as much as possible until it's identified that you do not have the virus, and certainly when you, if you don't have the Omicron variant. Um, yeah, so, um, um, Marty, um, again, there seems to be a fair amount of confusion. And, you know, a place like Florida, there, it's pretty freewheeling there, you know, um, probably uh, a little too freewheeling for the taste of most Canadians. I'm hearing back from many of my clients that are down there now that they are seeing some adherence to rules. They are finding waiters, waitresses are wearing masks. They are eating outdoors, so that solves that problem. And they are social distancing and continuing to follow all the rules. So the most, for the most part, they say it's just lovely down there, and we do know the weather is beautiful there, and it's getting cold here. So it's not sort of the Wild West show as we think it is. From what I understand, it's very controlled and a very safe-feeling environment. And what about, you know, a lot of people uh, like to go to the Caribbean. Um, what do you think is going on with trips like that? I, I think the Sun Destinations and the U.S. are still okay. I think international is what's definitely on the back burner for fear of getting stuck in a country and not being able to get back into Canada amongst a host of many other things. So for the moment, until Thursday's announcement, U.S. and Sun Destinations appear to be still a go for not only holiday season ahead, but for snowbirds for the November to April push. But, when You, you but mean the Caribbean as well? Yeah, yeah, I'm putting the sun destinations in there, Mexico, Puerto Vallarta, all the places. They seem to still be fine with respect to uh, numbers of of, um, uh, of, of vaccines, uh, sorry, of, of people with viruses. It seems to still be good. And who's kidding who? You have to be fully vaccinated to get to these places anyway. So hopefully that, that uh, lessens the risk of any uh, emergency room, ventilator, ICU, and that's all we can hope for at this point.
Dr. Vaseman, we've heard from the science advisory table that, that our ICU system would not withstand another surge. Uh, so what is your sense of it? Yeah, it's going to depend on what we find out now with the Omicron variant. So with the current Delta, it's unlikely we're going to reach a point with this current wave that we'd, we'd, we'd have to suffer through a surge as similar to one to two and three. But that changes if this Omicron variant turns out to be a far more virulent strain, which we'll know in a week or so based on the studies that would already started to be conducted last week or the week before. So, yeah, I mean, if we find out quickly, I mean, that's the whole point of the, this uh, test and isolate strategy is to try to delay transmission of the variant, because if we do know that it is far more virulent, then more and more preparations need to be made in Canada to expect that this, this, this variant will arrive here and will overtake Delta. So that, that's what remains to be seen about the surge. And, and what will tell the tale? Because we have heard that a lot of the cases were very mild, but then people say, well, that's because uh, most of the cases so far have been in, in very young people. Right. So what we'll, what we'll know is that we'll see from South Africa, because Omicron in that country is becoming the more dominant strain, we'll see more and more data about the outcomes among people who acquired the virus, including what is the outcome among vaccinated and unvaccinated individuals. And so that will give us a sense of what we might anticipate to be the um, the outcomes for people. And plus, we'll get a better sense of how truly transmissible it is. Because the sample size is so small right now, it's hard to actually accurately estimate what exactly the transmissibility of the virus is. And over the next few weeks, we'll have a better sense. And, and you expect that in around a week? Well, some of the earlier data might be available because some in vitro studies or lab studies may be done, including neutralization, uh, like we've seen with previous uh, variants, to see how well the vaccine works against them. But some of the more clinical data will take several weeks for that to show up in middle or late December. And Marty, what are you telling your clients? I am telling them that it is fine at this point to continue with their U.S. travel. What happens on Thursday with respect to the requirement changes, if any at all. And that internationally right now, I don't have to tell them anything. They're telling me they're either canceling their coverage or saying they, they know they're going with the risk that they may not get back so easily. And also that they can't insure a trip from a trip cancellation perspective right now with COVID as being the reason to cancel. That's the biggest question I'm getting now, people that want to insure a deposit or future deposits. And I'm telling them it will not cover if you decide you're not going because of a border closure, et cetera. Uh, Dr. Vaisman, to, uh, to wrap things up, you know, the science table said yesterday we need public health measures. So what would you want to tell our audience to be doing um, in addition to what they probably are already doing, even though we're all kind of relaxing, I guess? Yeah, I think what we, how we'll behave and what would be the appropriate things to do over the next few weeks really depends on what we find out about the variant and how much cases already will rise here in Ontario. So I would advise the audience to pay careful attention to the numbers and pay careful attention to the announcements by Dr. Tam and Dr. Moore about whether additional limitations will be recommended, such as limitations of the number of people gathering and that kind of thing. But certainly, as you said, a lot of the audience is already doing the right thing, which is, you know, masking, getting vaccinated, hand hygiene, all the regular things that we've been talking about since the and, beginning. And, and finally, are you expecting them to expand the eligibility for boosters? I think the, the, the evidence and the pressure is certainly mounting. There, there really isn't much reason not to expand the eligibility, at least to the 50 and over group. And then beyond that, very soon, I, mean, I, I think a lot of pressure is now mounting to do that. 
Okay. On that note, we will wrap things up. Thank you so much, Dr. Alon Vaseman and Martin Firestone. Really appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks Thank very much. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday, Barbados became the latest former British colony to become a republic. The country is framing the removal of Queen Elizabeth II as head of state as a way to finally break with the demons of its colonial history. And between 1627 and 1833, Barbados received 600,000 enslaved Africans who were put to work in the sugar plantations, earning fortunes for British English owners. Our history in Canada here is very different, but the move in Barbados raises the question, should we do the same thing? It's an issue that comes up every time there is news or just scandals involving the royals. And an Angus Reid poll finds that a majority 52% of Canadians think we should become a republic. However, most of us would probably prefer to wait until the Queen passes or abdicates. So what do you think? Uh, Is the monarchy a potent connection for you, or do you think it's time for us to move on? The number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Peter DiNolo, Vice Chairman of Hill & Knowlton Strategies, and he served as Director of Communications for former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, and James Stewart, the author of Being Prime Minister and a History Teacher at Bishop Strong School in Toronto. Hello and welcome to you both. Good afternoon. Peter, let us begin with you. You are a well-known Republican or anti-monarchist. So uh, what do you think watching Barbados take this step? I mean, as you you said, Libby, uh, they have their own uh, historical reasons for doing this. They're very different from Canada. You know, my view, and it has been my view for a long time, that this is an institution that's fundamentally at odds with um, the democratic principle, which is, uh, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a right of, of uh, that's handed down from within a single family from one generation to the next. Uh, you're born into it. Uh, you have to be a certain religion. Uh, and, you know, this notion, and it's a boot. It's a foreign institution. It's not, it's not, cause these people aren't Canadian. And so, you know, as a country, through the decades, through 150 years of our history since Confederation, you know, one by one, we, we sloughed off these remnants of, uh, of uh, being a British colony. Uh, you know, it took us a high, almost 100, and 100 years to get our own flag, for example. It's past time to get rid of this last remnant of uh, colonialism. Okay. James Stewart, how do you see it? Well, I guess my view is, is quite different from Peter's, and uh, where Peter was talking about the family and the hereditary aspect of it. I see the crown as a integral part of our parliamentary system. So the crown is part of parliament. And I think what happens is a lot of Canadians end up conflating the royal family 
and the personalities like Prince Charles and Harry and, and the machinations of, of that, uh, of that family with what the crown is as a constitutional inter- instrument, which is integral to how parliament works. And we inherited the parliamentary system from Britain. So it's not really a vestige of uh, an inherited family. It's part of, uh, our Westminster parliamentary system, which we've taken from Britain, and uh, and the crown is part of that. Okay, I mean, I guess it's it's difficult for people when uh, uh, you know. Wanna, the- uh, just on that, I mean, listen, James, I admire his work. He's a terrific writer. Knows a lot about Canadian history. I disagree with him fundamentally on this notion that we can't have a Canadian parliamentary system, a British style parliamentary system, in fact, without a monarch. Other Commonwealth countries have done it. Most of the Commonwealth actually, as you know, has actually abolished the monarchy. So we can have all these institutions, every single one of them, and this and this legacy without having a monarch. Well uh, you know, I've, I'm going to bring in a, a little note of levity here. And okay. um, I was watching Trevor Noah last night, and he's an American show, but he's from South Africa, so he knows a little bit about this, right? And uh, he was uh, talking to his American audience saying, do you believe it? There are countries, and he didn't name us, who have the queen on their money. <laughs> I mean, why should the queen be on our money? Well, she's on she's on on one bill, and she is the representation of the crown. But I think you know to Peter's uh, Peter's point, and you know, I, full respect for Peter too, who uh, is a seasoned communicator on on the airwaves. But I just wonder what actually would we do? How would we change that system? And we know anytime you get involved in the constitution in this country, it is a bag of worms. And it's a very difficult situation. You'd end up with a national unity crisis of some kind. And I don't really know how we would actually fix this with the way that our country currently is constructed. Well, uh, that's a legitimate point. That's a legitimate point. I think it's a more honest point than saying our parliamentary system would fall apart. We probably do need a, a constitutional amendment to do this. Doesn't mean that it's not worth discussing. Doesn't mean that when we get the opportunity like this, that we shouldn't point out what an anachronism and embarrassment. The monarchy is. Uh, and be, I'm going to take a couple of calls, but but I have to point out that always seems to be uh, the excuse or the pretext that it would just be so hard to do this, and and maybe it's not worth the trouble. But uh, let's take a couple of calls before we get into that. We've got Tony in Pefferlaw, Ontario. Hello, Tony. Ah, uh, good day. Hello, Libby. You remember back in school when they used to have, make us sing there? God save the Queen first and the national anthem next. And I used to go to St. Francis of Assisi in Toronto. Uh, literally, actually. And uh, we kind of like that. We like the fact that, you know, we had a bit of an, somebody's arm around us all the time. And, uh, and, I, and I'll be honest with you, I liked Toronto better back in the days, in the 70s and 60s. And why change things? Like, why? Because we're not going to the better. You know, now we got all these diseases and crap and stuff. And, 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 and the last thing we should really worry or think about right now is, is, is this monarchy thing? And it's like, like come on, people. Leave, leave things status quo. and It's work till the ending right now. Why, why bother changing it now? So, I, And I, I like that monarchy kind of stuff. You see it in our, our court system. You see it in Parliament. You see it all over the place. And I, I think it adds a little. So, Okay, Tony. Uh, we hear you. Thanks for your call. Let's Thank go you. to John in Peterborough. Hi, John. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm very good. Very good. It's time for all of this to be gone. It's 
time for Canada to become a republic and stand on its own two feet, not have ties to these foreign companies, or governments, I'm sorry. Okay? Now, of course, you can hear by my accent, I'm Irish. Yep. <laughs> we got freedom from them, fighting. We had to fight. And we got rid of the monarchy. Now, a little country like that can do it, and all the other countries, they're all going to do it. This is outdated. You know, there's, there's just, I, cannot, I cannot understand why people in Canada just don't see this. And by the way, I would imagine, I'm not sure, but I would pretty well bet the majority of the people in this country today are not Anglo-Saxons. But a lot of, uh, but there, there are uh, a lot of Anglo Saxons, and and it's you know it's culturally meaningful for the for those people. But yeah, uh, it's a very different country than it was, uh, you know, just a few decades ago. John, I hear you. Thanks for your call. Right. So um, it's uh, you know it's pretty clear. You're most people are either on one side or the other, though there are a lot of people who would have a lot less support after Queen Elizabeth, Peter. Do you think uh, the right thing to do is to wait? No, I don't, actually. The, the, when you wait, you get into the kind of um, uh, constitutional mess that, that John was referring to. I think, actually, you don't do your estate planning after the person's gone. You do it before the person's gone. And I think now is the time to say, I like to say, listen, Queen Elizabeth's been, been a very impressive uh, figure. She's hard to criticize. I have a lot of respect for her. But like the, uh, they do in the NHL, let's retire her jersey and uh, when she goes. And let's, let's have a motion in Parliament saying that she'd be the last monarch. We'll, we'll leave on a high and then, take, and then we, can take, we can take it on from here. Right. And I think, you know, Peter's point that, uh, well, some people who say, Peter says don't wait. But I think when people say wait until uh, the Queen has passed, and long may she reign, by the way, um, People are that that reveals that it's actually a personality uh, contest, and I think Peter knows that a legislation that goes through Parliament isn't going to change the constitution. All ten provinces have to agree to this, and that's not going to happen. So there's there's a big you know there, big, there actually is some some uh, legal debate about that. Uh, not to get too legalistic about it, but Ted McQuinney, right. who was a, a constitutional expert and a former and a, the late Ted McQuinney, he's no longer with us, former MP, he uh, postulated that, uh, in fact, Parliament needs to proclaim the monarch uh, as the head of state of Canada. And he uh, wrote at length that, that if actually the Parliament decided not to do that, we would have, in effect, uh, uh, a vacancy in the job. Just a minute. They have to do it when, like, with each sitting? or yeah, yeah, tell No, me. they have to proclaim, uh, you know, when, uh, when the new monarch, uh, when the old one goes and the new one comes in, that monarch has to be proclaimed as a monarch of Canada by Parliament. Oh, okay, so if they just, you know, forget to do it, that means we're not a monarchy? Well, I, think no, I don't think it works that, that way. There's a debate about this. Yeah, but, you know, let me, let me, let me make one point about you know, people think this is a vestige of uh, British colonialism, but I would also argue that Canada has taken this and Canadianized it with our appointments for governors general, which has allowed us to do very Canadian things, such as appointing our first uh, woman governor general, Jean Sauvé, and of course, with Mary Simon being appointed earlier this year, our first Indigenous governor general, Mikhail Jean, others. We've been able to Canadianize this institution, which I think is something very important to keep in mind. And that job could stay in place without a monarch. In fact, look at Germany, look at Italy. Those are, those are both democracies. Israel, another one. Those are all three democracies that actually what parliament selects 
a largely ceremonial head of state. So there's no reason we couldn't keep uh, breaking new ground with exciting appointees as governor general. Well, look at Barbados. I mean, the governor general just became the president. I mean, they did, they didn't even have to post the job. Well, that leads me to another point that I'd like to make, Libby, which is, you know, this country more than any other country in the world is subject to extreme Americanization of our culture and our institutions. I don't think Canadians want to uh, see us follow in the same footsteps and become a republic like the United States is. So when we keep our constitutional monarchy system, that is uh, a different political institution culturally and politically for us. And I think that's really important when you live next to the United States. But yeah, but there, there I don't are. I kind of, argue this is semantics. I mean, listen, we don't need to. Uh, we don't even need to name the change the name of the governor general if we if we were to go that way. And I, I'm always, by the way, uncomfortable being labeled a Republican because of the baggage it has from big R Republicans in the in the U.S. So uh, I think with I think it's a semantic argument that's not really that valid. Well, yeah, there are other a lot of other countries where you know you've got a prime minister and the president is more like a governor general is the the more symbolic kind of a role. I've you know um, shouldn't that be a, a model? Yeah, Kate? I wonder what happens to the importance of the governor general as a constitutional instrument. Like, there's so many interesting constitutional questions that come up with this that, you know, may or may not have be interest to the average Canadian. But if we really were to go down this road, uh, it would get very complicated in terms of where do these powers reside? The Crown has all the reserve powers that are a bit like a fire extinguisher. If anything went really bad in Parliament, you don't have to uh, look too far to see what can happen in, in some democracies, such as the United States on January 6th. And so the reserve powers that the crown possesses is essential in protecting our constitution. Yeah, and although the last time any British representative tried to flex that muscle was uh, <laughs> Governor General Bing, and it backfired. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> well, we want to go down the King for any of us rabbit hole right now. Okay, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah, maybe not. I'm going yeah. to take a call from Jane in Niagara. Hello, Jane. Hi. How is it every time there are problems with, um, the, you know, this COVID thing, the new strain, they bring out the monarchy? It just takes people's mind off what's going on in the world. Uh, well, it's, it actually uh, is a big source of entertainment, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. um, how many times has this been brought up? Well, it, it was brought up this time because Barbados just became a republic yesterday. Yeah, well, good for them. You know, well, uh, uh, does it uh, matter? I mean, well, uh, we let's don't ask want you, Jay. Like the United States, we want to retain something. Well, uh, mind you, today I I can't even say that I'm. Pro- I'll probably be labeled a racist. But I mean, they settled this country with all these things in place. Yeah, that was a while ago. <laughs> That was a while ago. Um, and, uh, you know, when people first settled here, there were, we, we didn't really have a democracy. So there you go. Jane, thanks for your call. That's right. Things evolve. But getting back to the mechanics of it, um, uh, Peter, do you have an idea of of how to do it in a way that we could do it without, you know, triggering a crisis. Well, the McWinney, the McWinney uh, uh, position I put forward is one approach. 
Another would be, frankly, for it would take a government uh, in an election to say this is something we want to do. Uh, it's not going to happen out of the blue. And unfortunately, our politicians, you know, they reflect the, the public opinion on this, which is like, you know, I like to say Canadians are like, when it comes to this, we're like uh, millennial uh, millennial kids who are living in their parents' basement. It's too comfortable to move out. There's no reason. <laughs> and so it's this, it's this inertia that uh, it's the biggest thing that the monarchy uh, has going for it. By the way, the arguments that some of your callers and others are using about the, the tradition of the monarchy and how proud it is are, to a word, the same arguments that people used in 1965. And James is, a, is an historian. He'll tell you this. In 64 yeah. and 65, against adopting a Canadian flag. Exactly the same. Really? Okay. James, tell us about that. Well, the echoes of that debate are, are similar. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if... If I had been alive in 1965, which I wasn't, and I'm not sure about Peter, maybe you weren't either. Um, oh, I think he was. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was little, though. I was yeah. a wee child. Yeah, I was trying to throw you a compliment there, Peter. Um, <laughs> in, in, in any case, um, you know, tradition is, is a strong argument. And, uh, you know, decades later, Canadians are very proud of the Canadian flag. I'm not sure that, like, this isn't just about tradition. This is about... But you didn't um, say how you would have stood at the time. You were about to Pardon me? Yeah. Sorry, I didn't hear you, Peter. How, you did you, how would you have... position would have been at the time. Oh, I think, you know, I think my position at the time that I would have been probably opposed to a new Canadian flag because I've actually thought about this. And uh, because I am someone who does appreciate the, the traditions of the country, but they do, they do change. Um, but I, I don't think monarchy is just about tradition. To me, it is a question of constitutionality, parliamentary democracy, and political science, which I know isn't sexy for radio or television, but that's really what kind of a question it is. Okay, but there is the whole aspect of tradition, and the fact is that um, <clears throat> I think for people of British heritage, this is meaningful, and I can tell you I, I live with one, and uh, I remember that it was with great bemusement when I first got married that I'd see, you know, my husband and his mother getting really excited to hear the Queen's speech. It just, you know, just totally does not resonate with me, not even a little bit. Um, so there's that. And as we have more and more people of uh, diverse and from, from different parts of the world, uh, it's not just that it doesn't resonate with a lot of people, but has very bad connotations for for many others. Yeah, I mean, I I don't feel that. I do, I understand that some people do feel that way, you know, about the, the negative connotations. That's not the way I feel. It's not what motivates, uh, and I respect that, but it's not what motivates my uh, anti-monarchism. Mine is based really on the 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 what I consider, you know, the the inherited nature of the office, how un basically undemocratic undemocratic it is, and also it's a foreign. So, Peter, uh, but Peter, I can understand you, where other people, especially as there's more talk about about uh, about history and about you know all the aspects of colonialism, that other people right. and of empire and the race racist aspects of empire, that uh, that other people would feel that more acute. But I think one aspect that you were talking about, Libby, in terms of you know the pomp and circumstance that comes with uh, monarchy. And I think that actually adds some uh, and a sort of a dignified aspect to our parliamentary system. And this is one of the arguments that um, Professor Mallory of McGill University made in his book uh, that came out in 1984 called The Structure of Canadian Government, where he talked about, you know, politics is very grubby. 
Uh, and in the legislature, the House of Commons or the Senate, it is uh, it, it can be dirty and ugly. But then above the fray, we have an appointed uh, governor general who is the representative of the head of state. And it gives a little bit of needed elevation and separation from electoral politics, which I think is very important. And you saw that again, to use that um, example from the United States on January 6th, there was no one who was elevated and above the system that could come in and say something to calm the nerves of the nation. Here we have that, the governor general. Yeah, but as I said earlier, you can have all that and and an impressive governor general without the shackles of the monarchy. Well, I guess, you know, that's an interesting question, Peter, but, you know, I wonder how that appointment process would go. How politicized would it become? I'm actually all in favor of making the appointment, the current appointment process, a lot less politicized. Look, we ended up with Julie Payette, which was a disaster because the PM (laughs) and his office didn't do due diligence. And we, I would actually be all, all for more input from parliamentarians in who the governor general is. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, the current process, uh, you know, it's, it's totally politicized. Yeah, it's one person's choice as opposed to let's get, let's get MPs from all parties. And, and other countries, when the parliament chooses a, a head of state, the leaders of all the political factions have to agree. Sometimes you're well, even <clears> a vote. Another way of looking at this question, too, is, how has the governor general or constitutional monarchy served the country in the last 150 years plus? And I think the answer to that is that it has served us quite well. So if it ain't broke, maybe you don't need to fix it. Yeah. Um, uh, and again, if Pearson had felt that way in 1964, we'd still be flying the red ensign over Parliament Hill. You might like well, that. Well, okay. But that, that was also, but Peter, that's also in response to a national unity crisis trying to, um, make French Canadians feel a greater part of the country. There was a lot of other reasons why he decided to do that. There were other reasons, but it was also part of our maturing as a nation. And I say that maturing. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, what do you think the likelihood uh, is that uh, any party hoping to be in government would, would take this up as an issue? <laughs> James. Peter, you go first on that one. Well, I mean, listen, these guys are all, they're scared of their own shadow, so I don't think so. And listen, <laughs> some of them, some of them actually believe the monarchy is a great institution. My former boss, Prime Minister Christian, he's one of only three Canadian prime minister, former prime ministers ever to become a member of the Queen's Order of Merit, which she personally chooses. He has a strong personal relationship with her. He's a monarchist. So, it's, listen, it's not, and I respect him. Uh, not on that issue, but I respect them. <laughs> right, I do request them. But and, so, and, and I just don't say. I think people will have the view that that James has, which is if it ain't broke, uh, you know, don't fix it. You know, don't kick a sleeping dog, whatever. And I think that's the way most politicians will feel. But you know, it's the it's the politicians who break the mold who actually say, "This is where I want to go. Follow me. Make history." Well, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting that uh, Jean Chrétien. I mean, more Quebecers. Uh, want to get rid of the mar- monarchy than the rest of Canada, people in the rest of Canada. Well, that's no surprise either. Yeah. That's just a historic, uh, a historic fact because of the history of, of Quebec and New France. And, and that poll that you cited, Libby, at the beginning said only 52% of Canadians wanted to ditch the monarchy. And that's basically 50% don't. So, you know, and the constitution is the third rail of Canadian politics, which you know, this would need a constitutional amendment, in my view. And as Peter was saying, no politicians are doing anything very bold right now. 
They can't even fix 24 Sussex Drive, where the Prime Minister <laughs> is supposed to live. So, you know, if you can't fix the house where your Prime Minister is supposed to live and, and say, this is this is what we do here, we, we do big things and and, uh, and we make our institutions representative and allow people to uh, respect their history, there's no way they're going to go and change the monarchy. Okay, uh, let us hear from Louise in Toronto. Hello, Louise. Hello. Great show, Libby. Um, I just like to say that the Queen's message, it's tradition that we listen to the Queen's message and everybody's looking forward to it to every year and we can sit down quietly and listen and that's why we want to hear the Queen's message. Also, it's a very good idea. At least let us listen to one woman, the Queen, as opposed to all these men's voices taking over and giving us messages all the time. That's my my comment. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you, Louise. Okay. I did not mean to disparage the Queen's message. <laughs> well, I gotta that, tell you, Louise, I, I grew up listening to the Queen's message, which I guess was something uh, important to my father. And then I still listen to it. I tried to get my kids interested in the Queen's message, but the tradition is it's waning a little bit with them, with the younger kids. Well, I mean, you know, I end up listening to it too. It, it wasn't the Queen's message itself. It's it's the level of excitement, uh, the anticipation of it that I uh, found, frankly, a little amusing, but um, that's me. Let's hear from Brian in Mimico. Hello, Brian. Hi, Libby. You know, I was around when they changed the flag. I got to admit, I hated the idea at the time, but I've grown used to it now, and I, I like it. It's it's a very recognizable flag around the world. You can spot it right away, and I do like it. Then, of course, I also didn't like unification either when they decided to get rid of the, the Army, Navy, and Air Force, put them all in the one green uniform, just call them the Canadian Armed Forces. Luckily, they've now reversed that. That was a stupid idea. And as far as the royalty goes, well, Queen Elizabeth has been so good at it. Wait, let's wait till she's gone and then uh, decide whether we want to get rid of the monarchy or not. Okay, Brian. I'm going to take a last one from Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how are we doing today? Fine. So besides all the <clears throat> political considerations and all that, does not does no one appreciate that how ridiculous it is when let's say the royals say have a new baby. The attention that a, this child gets simply based on bloodline and the idea that someone should be ruling a country based on bloodline in this day and age, it just seems totally really absurd to me, tradition or otherwise. Okay, Daryl, thanks for that. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, so, uh, yeah, uh, I would say uh, people are pretty well split. We're basically out of time, so 20 seconds each, starting with James Stewart. Thank you, Libby. I guess the final point I wanted to make was to pick up on something Louise was saying and, and about the Queen's message and that symbols are important in a country. And, you know, the monarchy and the constitutional element of, uh, of the Queen and the symbolism that it represents for Canada is an important part of our history, and it's something that should be maintained. Peter. Listen, I'm looking forward to debating this for the next 10 years, because we're <laughs> going to still be talking about it. And uh, it's, uh, listen, it's a bit of a luxury that this is the kind of thing we can debate in Canada, when other countries have far more serious civil and, you know, and urgent and threatening civil issues to discuss. So, but like I say, let's grow up, guys. 
Okay. Thank you both, and uh, happy holidays to you both. Thanks, Peter Danolo and James Stewart. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we are going to turn to uh, more serious and dire things after the break. Uh, The Ontario Science Table, the Science Advisory Table, is warning that our ICU capacity uh, cannot withstand another COVID surge. And this is coming out as we are facing a lot of unknowns with the Omicron variant. So uh, we'll get the uh, scoop on that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.